welcome back to the Grace in Common podcast to a new episode. Um, this is a podcast with four friends, four theologians from four different countries and three different continents. My name is Marinus de Jong. I'm a pastor of the Oosterparkerk in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. With me today is James Aglinton, lecturer of Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and Corey Brock, who is from the United States but works as a pastor of St. Columbus Free Church, also in Edinburgh. So welcome to this episode, and today we have a, a, a guest with us, um, and uh, his name is Robert Covolo. Um, Robert is professor, assistant professor of theolo theology and culture at Pooler Theological Seminary um, in Pasadena. He's also pastor of Christchurch um, Shera Madre and director of vocational discipleship at the Center for Faith and Work in Los Angeles. Welcome, Robert. It's great to have you. Great, thanks. It's great to be here with you guys as well. Yeah, so maybe um, um, a question to start us going. Um, Robert, can you say something about how about your own journey into neo-Calvinism? Um, it, it has become a part of your life. We we know that. That's part of the reason you're here. But maybe you can you can share with us how you how you ended up here. Yeah, it's it's quite fascinating. I uh, was raised um, kind of just broadly evangelical, and uh, at a certain stage of my life, I I ended up kind of, first of all, converting to the Reformed faith quite late in life, actually. One day while I was surfing in Huntington Beach, I just, uh, it just dawned on me that I was a Calvinist. And, and I was really disturbed by that because I, I'd already gone through seminary. Uh, I was already not a Calvinist in my mind, um, but I knew enough about my own spiritual uh, transformation that was taking place, a certain kind of deep, um, suspicion about my own natural hunches about God and a deep dependence on God's word and and a recognition of um, kind of my inability to uh, to do anything without God, a whole spirituality of Calvinism. But it was later that uh, I wanted to, I, I actually didn't know much about um, kind of Calvinism theologically. And I wanted to go back and study some more. I wanted to do doctoral studies. And at the same time, I was hearing the name Abraham Kuyper, and I thought, oh, I might, I might be interested in that guy. So I, I was looking around, and um, I stumbled upon an essay Kuyper wrote in which he was talking about uh, fashion and secularization. It was actually a speech he gave, and I was absolutely just enthralled with this, and that then just made me fascinated with Kuyper, and the more I read Kuyper, and the more, and that, of course, that was that just kind of led to some other things. Or um, I read a book by Al Walters, Creation Regained, which is many people oftentimes read that, and um, it helps to kind of orient them into the tradition of neo-Calvinism. Uh, but slowly but surely, I just uh, began to um, read more and more uh, neo-Calvinist sources. Herman Bavink followed after that, and uh, and and then eventually I came to Fuller and studied at Fuller and studied at the Free University and studied with. Um, people in the neo-Calvinist tradition actually met uh, met uh, all of you in in that uh, process as well eventually, and and very happily so as well, Robert. Um, we've been friends for quite a few years now through through different originally through neo-Calvinist conferences, um, and something that's been fascinating about watching your own work develop within the tradition has been your work on theology and fashion. So you already mentioned that. I guess your interest in the tradition was 
grabbed in the first place by finding Kuiper as a theologian who wrote about fashion. Um, and you've gone on to to write this really fascinating book that came out, I think, two years ago or last year with, with Baylor University Press, Fashion Theology. It's really interesting work. Um, we mentioned it a couple of episodes ago on the podcast as well, talking about, so we were, we were having a conversation about modernity in general and what to make of it and how actually we're all engaging with modernity. And Gray brought up uh, how in your book you point out that the, the modern suit um, which is the kind of, at least where I'm from, it's the attire of deeply pious conservative Christians who don't uh, look on the idea of the modern with, with, you know, beaming smiles across their faces. And yet the, the, the uniform that they wear for that is the product of the French Revolution uh, and, and has this very distinctly modern lineage. So you've given us a, a really fascinating, fascinating work um to to chew on as well in that book and i'm really grateful to you for it but you know one, one question i have for you is that you know you, well you mentioned getting into the tradition in the first place through kuiper as a, as a theologian who wrote about fashion and that's in the lecture on uniformity the curse of modern life i think right so yeah we were actually discussing that in our in the last episode of the podcast as well but you know in your book you you also deal a lot with theologians way before Kuiper. I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things about your book is that Tertullian uh, stands out as being kind of an anti, anti-culture, anti-fashion uh, theologian, but actually the Christian tradition really broadly uh, does very interesting things with what we, you know, how, how we clothe our bodies. Um, so, you know, I, I guess if you think about Kuiper as your entry point into thinking about theology, culture, and then fashion as an aspect of culture. What about, about neo-Calvinism that um, makes it worthwhile as the, like the lens through which to view all of that, everything that comes before? You know, James, I, you know, I, I entered the tradition with this essay. I decided I needed a writing sample and, uh, and I was shocked that here was a theological uh, at that point, I didn't know it was a tradition. I just thought it was a theologian, you know, Kuiper, um, who was able to think so deeply about um, something like fashion and add all these theories about it. And actually, um, and and actually, even my insights about the suit, you know, come from Kuiper uh, that you were just referencing, um, and that essay where he um, he obviously is referencing um, the significance of the shift uh, to the suit and how it's um, um, actually kind of an outcome of the force of fashion itself. Um, and that's, that, uh, you know, Kuiper is so fascinating. I actually teach, I just taught a graduate class on fashion and theology as well. And we go through several different aspects. Uh, and what surprises me as we go into fashion and identity, you know, fashion and art, fashion and uh, X, Y, Z, because we do about 10 different weeks and 10 different fashion ands, um, is how many times Kuiper ends up um, having so much insight that other theologians don't have. And so while, um, you know, in the book, I go kind of across history um, and talk about different theologians. Uh, I talk about Augustine and I talk about Aquinas and I talk about Calvin and I talk about Bart. What's surprising is how advanced Kuiper's understanding of fashion was. And I think that was because um, the tradition itself um, is deeply aware of its situatedness in modernity and the challenges that are part of that. 
including the cultural challenges. Uh, I think the, the, the neo-Calvinist tradition, it's birthed by a very definition of like, we need to reformulate Calvinism in light of modern cultural challenges. And so there's so much there within the tradition when dealing with um, uh, cultural things that, that are emerging in modernity. Um, and of course, fashion is distinctly um, connected to modernity in ways that um, other cultural phenomena may not be. So I think that's one of the reasons why it was such a rich source uh, for that. Um, I mean, if I may, I could just give you an example. Like one of the things we talk about in the class is um, fashion and, and, and history and what is fashion's relation to history. And so you have people like, uh, you know, John Wesley, um, who I'm a big fan of in many ways, but John Wesley talking about how, how uh, he has a quote where he talks about how as soon as you are thinking about and, and engaged in the world of fashion, you've left the actual work of God in history behind, which actually is very similar in a strange way to, uh, to someone like, um, oh gosh, like uh, uh, Baudrillard, who, who wants to talk about how fashion is just simply the death of all history. It's the anti-history. Anti so strangely, like John Wesley and, and, and Jean Baudrillard are, have, they have a very similar view of the relationship of fashion and history, you know, very negative. And then you get some that are more positive, like you have uh, uh, people like Lars Fenson, who's a, he's a um, Scandinavian philosopher who talks about fashion as being derivative of history. Uh, and, then, and then you have people like Carl uh, uh, Barth who wants to talk about how fashion is, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's, yeah, it comes out of history, it's, it's derivative, it's associated with history. But then finally you have those that say, no, fashion is actually its own historical force. It actually is a driver in history. It's not the only driver, you don't wanna overtax fashion, but it's actually a significant force in history. And so you have people like Walter Benjamin, the, the Frankfurt School neo-Marxist, um, who talks about fashion as a Tigersprung that just kind of, um, you know, uh, it, when we enter into the world of fashion, in a certain sense, we, we attempt to escape history and have this kind of like um, transcendent perspective. Um, and and there's, there's an argument for this when you look at a lot of the kind of late modern fashion where you're just kind of picking and choosing from different epochs and where you, what you dress, right? And then who's, who's the theologian that you would pair with this perspective? Abraham Kuyper. You know, Kuyper believed that fashion doesn't just reflect history like Bart, but it makes history. Fashion is a driver and it needs to be respected as such. And so, you know, Kuyper stood out as I, can, as I then looked at different theologians, he stood out with such a profound sense of, of um, insight into fashion in a way that really lined up with a lot of the kind of things that I think um, modern, uh, modern uh, fashion theorists are talking about. Kuiper was kind of on it, <laughs> you know, well over a century ago, maybe a century and a half ago. So, thank you, Robert, for this uh, this fascinating insight into into how you could apply and and use Kuiper for this this unexpected field. I think for also many many of our listeners, maybe. Um, so I'm wondering, well, I was wondering while you were just uh, saying this, so could could you say something about how you think today's fashion is shaping history? Um, it, it's, it's maybe not an easy question, but I mean, Kuiper lived over a hundred years ago. Fashion was completely different. Um, I, so is, is there something you could, you, you could say about that? Oh yeah, I, you know, um, we're living of course in uh, a day in which we're trying to make gender completely liquid. Um, we're obsessed with identity. Uh, that's a huge subject, social identity. And 
whether or not there is anything below um, gender other than construct, right? And and even pushing into the into the body, we're questioning whether sex is even a thing. And in many ways, I think this is the result of um, the power of fashion as a force, as a liturgy in, in modern life. Um, as we continually mix and match identity markers on our bodies within the, the rise of fashion, the rapid interplay of images which, by which we can present ourselves, it makes sense that this would then become a pressing question within late modern culture is, how can we establish any kind of stable identity? And uh, you know, fashion from its inception has been absolutely fascinated with gender and gender boundaries. You know, uh, that's been around for a long time. So we've had, you know, now decades of, um, of fashion pushing against any kind of um, gender identity marker. And so it's no surprise to me that um, we're kind of in the cultural moment that we are. Um, and I don't want to say that's just fashion, but I would, would want to say that fashion is definitely one of the drivers in our particular historical moment. So when you talk about your work in fashion and theology, um, it's really part of a bigger field, which is theology and culture more generally. And that's what you teach at Fuller. Um, can you tell us about what, what does it mean to be a, I mean, do you style yourself as a, as a cultural theologian or theologian of culture, for example? Um, I guess for a lot of listeners, that might be a completely new thing, you know, so you're giving them a new paradigm in the first place to see that this is something that can be done with theology. Um, you know, I find, you know, obviously, I teach theology for a living. Um, I've discussed your book with some of my colleagues. And even for a lot of people who, you know, who work in, in theology, um, the idea of doing fashion and theology is, is so creative with bringing two things together that it's really surprising, even to some theologians who, um, who just don't have those paradigms, for example. Um, so if it's like that for some professional theologians, I'm sure for some of our listeners, you know, they're, they're hearing, you know, a cultural theologian, what is that exactly? You know, they're used to like a systematic theologian or biblical theologians or historical theologians, but what you're doing is, is, um, is a very distinct kind of thing within that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so, thanks James. That's, yeah. yeah, that's very insightful. I am doing something a little different. You know, uh, when we think of like theology and culture, we can think of it differently. Sometimes we think of uh, a theology of culture um, and we think about what does it mean to think theologically about culture? You know, what is culture? What does God think of culture? Where did culture come from? Um, what does it mean to be made in the image of God as a culture maker? And those are important questions. But um, my interest in the way I think of myself is as a cultural theologian, not just simply someone who understands theology and culture. In cultural theology, it already... Um, kind of uh, assumes a lot of theology of culture, <laughs> you know, it assumes that God cares about culture and that we were made the image of God and, you know, that, that we've been given a mandate to be culture makers. But then it wants to go farther and it wants to actually begin to theologize different, uh, understand uh, different aspects of culture theologically. So how do we think theologically about, you know, fashion or I think of Derek Sherman over at Calvin, who does a lot on uh, design and technology or any get sports. You know, I had a colleague who did one on, uh, it was, a, you know, focused on sports. So how do we think theologically about these various kind of spheres of um, cultural practice in which you get into the cultural warp and wolf, you know, 
the, the logics of practice um, because cultures and cultural practices carry within them internal logics. And until you've entered into those logics and begun to exegete those logics, uh, you can't really speak or understand them in a way that is significant. And so Christians have a calling to enter into these different kind of arenas, these cultural arenas or these cultural spheres, so to speak, and then think theologically as, to think theologically just means to think as Christians within those spheres. And so, you know, what I did is I entered into fashion theory um, and I entered into the sphere of fashion and I began to think as a Christian. And I, had, I was surprised that there was, I didn't have very many role models. I mean, that's probably why I, I clung so tightly to people like Abraham Kuyper, um, because I really wanted to understand it within that. So when I think of theology and culture, I, I think um, of those two kind of breakdowns, a theology of culture and then cultural theology um, as two different kinds, kinds of, one's more of a, a larger question, one's more of a specific focus. Yeah. So I, I've just finished teaching a course here in Edinburgh on the history of modern theology. And a lot of it is actually to do with theology and culture. So these are big questions in the 19th century in continental Europe. So we covered texts like David Friedrich Strauss, um, The Old Faith and the New, and, um, and then Nietzsche's critique of that text, which is David Strauss, The Confessor, which is where Nietzsche calls Strauss a cultural Philistine. And Nietzsche's critique of Strauss is really insightful on many, many fronts. But you know, David Fries, David Strauss, you know, he wrote this book that made him the kind of Richard Dawkins celebrity non-Christian of his day. And the book is all about why 19th century Prussians should realize that actually culture is so satisfying that, um, you know, because Prussians have got the best language and they've got the best music and they've got the best literature and they've got the best poetry. Um, so therefore they should realize what a gift they have in culture and that, that that should be their new faith in effect, a kind of scientific or kind of scientifically derived um, cultural project. And then Nietzsche comes along and, and just destroys that argument and calls him a cultural Philistine and says that if you, um, you know, if you really try and satiate yourself just through what culture can offer you, then uh, you're a Philistine. You don't appreciate the true culture makers. So for Nietzsche, you know, the, the very few people who are significant culture makers are the ones who they, they kind of leave culture in their wake, but they don't want to rest within it. They're always pushing forward into something that's edgy and new. You know, they stand on the edge of a precipice. And then the, the Philistines, in Nietzsche's terms, are the people who follow behind them and content themselves with, um, with a really superficial, you know, you know, I've read some Goethe as well, therefore I'm cultured and so on. And another, another figure that we read in the course is Kierkegaard as well, who's also very interesting as a critique of, of Strauss and of this approach to culture, um, where for Nietzsche, again, you know, there, there are different phases of life that you can go through with, um, the aesthete, which is for him is the lowest form of life. Um, you know, if you just content yourself with um, the kind of cultural aesthetics of your day and instead then you move to a higher level, which is to be concerned with ethics and the common good, but the highest level is to live the religious life. And so we cover a lot of figures in this course who have quite stinging critiques of culture in general. Um, but neo-Calvinism seems to do something quite different with culture in the first place. Um, it doesn't seem to be I mean, it doesn't have any of the naivety towards culture that someone like David Strauss had, because neo-Calvinism really believes in sin and in an antithesis that runs through culture alongside common grace. But also, 
it doesn't look down on the ordinary person in the way that Nietzsche does and say that actually these people think they're cultured, but they're just Philistines and they're just idiots who don't know any better. And they're the sheep, they're the herd. Um, so neo-Calvinism, it, it, it affirms um, a kind of a grassroots level culture making and cultural participation. Um, but also it, it, I think it does something quite similar to Kierkegaard as well. And that for Kierkegaard, you know, if you, it's easy to make cultural goods into idols. Um, and you, um, I guess, you know, for, 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 for Kierkegaard, you know, the way that his way of approaching this works is that um, the aesthete, the, the lowest level of life, that, that's a person who, who really just lives for individual pleasure, right? Who lives for themselves. And really for Kierkegaard, what culture mediates is, is, uh, is like sex and power. And that's mediated to us through all kinds of different cultural uh, phenomena and artifacts and so on. And if you only live for yourself, then you realize that your your life has no meaning. So then the next level up for Kierkegaard is to work out, well, I will, I will live for others then and live for the ethics. I'll live for the good of my fellow human beings. But if that's all that you have as well, and there's nothing transcendent beyond that, if there's no religious life, it's also meaningless because there's just no way that you can fix the whole world. Um, so instead for, for Kierkegaard, you have to have that third level of life, the religious life. And I think for Kierkegaard, that's a deeply Augustinian way of thinking. Um, you know, that if you try and derive meaning from things, um, they'll, they'll always disappoint. And instead, you can only truly enjoy the giver of, of the gifts of this world. Um, so I think neo-Calvinism uh, is closer to Kierkegaard, but also I think it interacts really meaningfully with the kind of critiques of culture that you find in, for example, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, curious to know, though, I mean, what, what do you think of, of those kinds of figures and critiques of culture and um, how well neo-Calvinism stands up in, in view of those critiques? Well, I love the, the way that you li uh, just line that up there with all those, uh, just, uh, those three thinkers. And uh, yeah, I agree with your assessment. Uh, and uh, I particularly, I think you're right to say that uh, if you had to kind of line neo-Calvinism up with any given one of those thinkers, I would definitely say that Kierkegaard would be <laughs> where, uh, and of course, uh, you can hear that with uh, Bob Inc. Uh, you know, it's clearly uh, read a lot of uh, Kierkegaard and uh, so has Kuiper. And in fact, um, uh, in fact, when, when, when Kuiper talks about fashion, he actually uses a Kierkegaardian critique of kind of the mass consumption, which is very, very similar to Kierkegaard's concern that we just simply become kind of, um, yeah, just fixated on the shiny object of culture and just kind of take it as it is um, and, and kind of go along as the herd, right? With, uh, uh, which, which is, is Nietzschean in a way as well, like that concern that we don't just simply take culture. Um, so I think that's fair. I think that's a good way to, to kind of summarize uh, neo-Calvinism's layering of its approach to culture. And I like that you've used those three, those three folks as an example. Yeah, thank you, Robert. So, um... Let me let me try to to delve a little bit more into into how then um, I, I'm I'm imagining listeners still wondering so what does it mean to enter then the world of fashion theory or whatever like cultural phenomenon as a question you're going to delve into and then what's going to happen when you when you enter you you said you you you're making a kind of analysis of it but then how does it how does it get beyond ethics maybe 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 that's the question how does it get beyond saying 
this is this is good and this is not good. I think when we think of theology and fashion, the first thing that probably comes to mind for too many is like, oh, you shouldn't and you should uh, mm -hmm. in church, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so could you could you could you help help us maybe maybe see a little bit better how then how then it gets beyond that? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Marinas. Um, I think that that's the first kind of low lying fruit that. Uh, uh, has, has been sadly the only kind of place Christians have gone, which is, you know, is the, this particular dress going to facilitate immodesty or vanity? Um, and, um, and, and, and of course, anytime we get into ethics and questions of value behind it are always uh, questions of what it is, what a thing is. We value it based on what it is. And so that's really the more significant question which Christians have not gotten into when it comes to fashion. And uh, of course, uh, fashion as a subject hasn't had a formal focus except for the last uh, half, um, half century um, where fashion theory and fashion studies has taken off. There are theorists of fashion long before the discipline took off, um, of course, but it's been in the last half century that, uh, that this entire theoretical field of discourse has arisen called fashion theory and there's just and, and of course the big question is what is it what is fashion of course that's the that's at the center of the of uh, fashion theory because until you understand what it is how do you know how to value it or what to say about it and so already as christians i think that we are not even aware of our own assumptions of what fashion is and so therefore we we actually just kind of the path of least resistance is just to default to these very facile criticisms uh, and, and assessments. And so, you know, once you enter into the field of fashion theory and you start asking what fashion is, you begin seeing how, and you start unpacking that question, you begin to see how complex the question is. And that, and they, you pretty quickly realize that you had an assumption of what fashion is. And then once you start reading other folks, in the discipline, in the field of fashion theory, you start hearing all these other uh, voices, you know, um, and um, and and so and 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 that's that's just kind of part of the joy of being within that field. So you see people that are saying that fashion is about uh, the complete erasing of tradition. It's anytime there's tradition, you want to get rid of it, right? So, or fashion is a general term that refers to any kind of systemic change in social life maybe in architecture or academia, or we talk about how cars come in and out of fashion or ideas or books, or, um, you know, there's those that want to talk about fashion is um, uh, that which is simply acceptable now. It's kind of shorthand for what is acceptable now. It has no tie to the past or, um, uh, and so, you know, we can go, kind of go down the line. You have uh, lots of kind of theories of what fashion is. And then of course, Pretty quickly, though, you realize that whatever fashion is, it's deeply entwined with change. And so most of these theorists will talk about fashion as deeply entwined with change. And then that then becomes another question, well, what drives the change? And then immediately you're thrust into all of the soft sciences and some of the hard sciences as well, I would add, that have different theories about what drives human behavior, economic theories, uh, social theories, psychological theories, uh, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so then those all get rec uh, kind of displayed within the soft sciences. Every soft science has a discussion about fashion and has kind of, it's kind of barking for its particular vantage point on the world as being the way to understand 
fashion as a driving force and its change is being driven by, I mean, for instance, like um, Thomas Carlyle, who was, you know, uh, a, uh, uh, you know, a famous uh, 19th century um, German, um, he wrote uh, Sartorius Artis, German philosopher and kind of linguist, he wrote Sartorius Artis, The Tailored Retailer, and it's a novel that purports to be a commentary on the thoughts and life of an early German philosopher called Diogenes Tufelstracht. So we don't need to get into the details, but he has this really interesting literary device. And the whole point of this, this supposed novel is to bring up clothing and what is clothing about. And, and so it's a first attempt at a philosophy of clothing. And, it, and in his book, he says, man is a spirit and bound by invisible bonds to all men and clothes are the visible emblems of those bonds. And, and so for Thomas Carlyle, what drives fashion is the fact that our relationships are constantly shifting. And therefore, because our bonds are shifting, dress is always shifting. It's a very fascinating, I don't know what to make, you know, if, I wouldn't say, I'm not sure I'm gonna hang all fashion on, on Carlyle, but that gives you an example of here's somebody that's wanting to say that, that what drives change in fashion is actually relationships. It's what drives change in fashion and, and the kind of bonds and relationships we have um, in society. So yeah, does that help? Yeah, that's great. Um, really interesting. So one thing that I would love to hear your thoughts on is the issue of fashion and cultural appropriation. Um, so, you know, it, it's this phenomenon of, for listeners, if they, if they don't know what I'm talking about, where if you wear clothes that um, are not historically tied to, for example, your own ethnic group, some people get really upset by that and say that it's inappropriate and that fashion should be uh, some kind of ex exclusive property of um, you know, wh whichever group of people um, first wore that kind of look, for example. Um, so, you know, non-Scottish people were to wear a kilt. Um, this happens all the time in Edinburgh. You can always tell who's actually Scottish and who isn't by um, whether the kilt they're wearing is a real one or whether they just bought it for £10 and it's not made of wool at all and they're wearing it wrongly and they're obviously tourists at the Royal Mile. Um, Scottish people just kind of roll their eyes at that usually. But, um, you know, some people might say that's cultural appropriation. I know that's a silly example, but um, that you know, how you think about fashion in relation to this idea of cultural appropriation is also tied into your views of culture and um, place. I mean, we discussed this in our last episode as well. We were doing an episode on theology of place. So and I guess neo-Calvinism has resources to think about all of those different things. How does a neo-Calvinist theologian of fashion think about the issue of cultural appropriation and clothing? Yeah, I guess I just I guess one part of me just wants to say there is no clear way to demark any culture, cultural, like culture is not a pure thing. It's always mixing and matching and um, any, I mean, just look, the language we're using, of course, is borrowing from any given number of, um, uh, any given number of, you know, previous languages, you know, Latin and et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's French words in the English language, et cetera. So to keep language pure to me feels like pretty difficult task. But I would also say that in terms of like fashion, fashion itself is a visual metaphor. Um, it works more like a metaphor than a rigid designator. And so now we're talking about kind of exegeting dress, you know, dress is a form of communication. 
and it's a way in which we communicate. But the way in which it communicates is, is um, very, it, it, there's all kinds of things that make it very difficult. So that just this idea of kind of like a sender receiver model doesn't quite work. Number one, when you think about the author of our dress, um, who is the author of what we're wearing? Well, in one sense, there's the person who made the dress and then there, there's us picking the dress to put on our bodies. But then there's a situation where when our bodies enter into different social settings, the meanings of the dress that we've decided to wear can change. And so if you show up at a, at a kilt um, and you're walking down High Street in Edinburgh, um, it, it might be understandable as just kind of a, uh, just the gaff of a tourist. But if you show up at somebody's wedding and you're not Scottish and you're wearing a kilt, it could be seen as offensive within that particular context. I don't, I don't actually know exactly all the, all the ways in which it, you know, it means, because I'm, I'm not an expert on the kilt. But, um, and, that, and so that just kind of shows us that, that um, number one, I think part of the question that you have, James, is that dress is a complex signifier um, and it's and it's something that um, the way it signifies is more like a metaphor and and like all visual art, it is an open metaphor. So this is why art is always so um, tricky is because it's a, it has fuzzy edges and it can latch onto lots of things that then shift its meaning. And some people see this as the curse of art and why they don't like going to museums. <laughs> and some people see this as the great blessing of art. I think Gadamer would say that it's uh, the great blessing because it's that surplus of meaning that enables us to actually have meaning. And I would say that other theorists like Derrida and those that see power and control and oppression behind the openness of symbols would see it as something that is dangerous. And that's probably what you're referring to, James, when you talk about people seeing great oppression behind um, taking up certain visual markers that are not a part of their native culture is there's an assumption that there's oppression. Of course, there's an assumption there's oppression behind everything these days. Frankly, it's pretty, um, it's almost entered into the, the common way in which we perceive everything these days seems to be through what uh, uh, Ricoeur called the hermeneutics of suspicion that, um, that, that just seems kind of, uh, instead of having a charity towards or a recognition of the complexity and, and maybe being open to, to um, what something is when there's an excess of meaning, we assume there's some kind of oppressive oppression and there very well could be oppression. So we can't throw, rule that out as, as well. Yeah, it's fascinating, Robert, to, to see how you, how you do that. And also how it really like, it, it really brings you something when you like take a deep dive into fashion theory. And then, I mean, just by just by telling some of their insights, you see, you 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 immediately realize that, like the, the the maybe the quick ethical judgment Christians have often made in terms of fashion are are way too shallow. That if you take into account, well, for example, I really like how you how you asked the question of like who's the author of your, um, of 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 your of your dress of fashion. That that's just a, such a layered question, and it, it changes in every context also, which makes, well, I, I guess of course there's still is or should be a Christian ethic of fashion, but it becomes much more nuanced and layered uh, and, and, a, and a far better understanding of, of, of what it is and what is all implied in it. So yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. And I think it can really help all of us in, in reflecting on, on fashion and also, and also think in an ethical way um, about it. Um, so, and um, you, you, you probably know that in New Calvinism, we always like, 
uh, to to say or to um, to emphasize how like all well, it's it's Kuiper's catchphrase. Hey, there's no domain of life which is not a part of Christ or uh, Christ's reign. Um, but also to deep understanding how there is sin in all those domains and also in this one. Um, but then also, but that that means that also fashion uh, and every part of culture can in some ways be redeemed. And so that there, there is sin and there's problem, but th that doesn't mean that we should like avoid it. Well, fashion is something you cannot avoid. I think it's, it's, it's impossible. We all wear clothes. Um, um, but could you, could you say something about that? How, how you think, like from this new Calvinist Christian perspective, you can say something about, well, the redemption of fashion. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's easy to talk about the dark side of fashion, and we should talk about the dark side of fashion. Um, you know, fashion is complicit with uh, invasive market forces. Um, you know, any any assessment of fashion that leaves out the fact that it is a consumer item, and in many ways, I think is. Um, it's, it's emblematic of, of conspicuous consumption and, um, and it's emblematic of just kind of giving yourself over to consumption, right? Um, which sadly, I believe that that's a, a, a kind of a, a kind of sub-religion or I call a religion within a lot of American culture is just you give yourself over to this kind of constant um, need to kind of define your preferences in light of consumer objects. Uh, and, and of course, then there's also the kind of rampant um, individual expressionism, um, another ism, consumerism, expression, expressionism, where you believe that uh, the, the, the goal of life is to, you know, to display um, and reach deep inside you and find out what's absolutely unique about you because you and you alone are the first of your kind and and then to, then to show that in what you wear and your unique style and stylization of your life and showing your uniqueness is what life is and and then this gets driven into all kinds of kind of the liquidity of identity and all this stuff that um, we see kind of taking place in, in late modernity and i think um carl truman has a book that came out that, that kind of Develops that, of course, Charles Taylor um, in his Ethics of Authenticity talks a lot about that. But Charles Taylor, of course, talks about fashion as being one of the driving forces in that. And I already mentioned that. Uh, we could go on and on about how fashion, um, you know, kind of has a dark side. As an industry, it has a dark side, of course. We have sweatshops and we have this and we have that. Uh, we have, um, we have the, 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 the way in which fashion destroys the environment and the way you know, we haven't even talked about that. I think that's kind of low lying fruit. You know, I think we should be talking about sweatshops and we should be talking about environmental damage that fashion does. But, um, but uh, I think those are pretty, that's pretty kind of one plus one stuff. Um, and I, I also want to talk about the deeper issues of the darkness of fashion. And, and, and hopefully we've talked a little bit about that, but but we don't want to end there because, you know, uh, fashion or dresses is always a sign of, um, if you kind of just take the Bible and you tally up <laughs> when dress is spoken of as a negative thing and then as a positive thing, all things being equal, it is a great boon to be dressed in the Bible. <laughs> you know, dress is a positive thing. And, uh, you know, Isaiah 61, 10 says that he dresses us in robes of righteousness and so dress oftentimes in the Bible signifies glory and dignity and your humanity being restored. 
and the ennoblement of your, of your person, the human flourishing. And so scripture uses that. So we should not just approach fashion and dress just purely from that angle. We also have to see that, that fashion points towards the future. It has this kind of future focus and it, it brings, it can bring with it a powerful sense of hope. Um, I mean, psychologists are right when they talk about retail therapy. Like if you go into a store when you're feeling really bummed and you find an outfit that helps you to kind of envision yourself in some kind of future scene of your life um, where you're not playing the same role you're playing right now can be helpful. I don't think it's going to be salvific. And I don't think that's the, uh, you know, that's the only way you're going to approach therapy. It's probably has limited outcomes. But I think what that points to is the hope that we have as believers in the body. You know, of all the different kinds of cultural markers, the way in which we can display the beauty and splendor and glory of the human body projected into the future I mean, that's as Christian as it gets, right? <laughs> like, that's our hope, right? Um, and so I, I think that, I, in fact, it was um, N.T. Wright uh, was uh, the, 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 well, he was on a radio program one time. It was actually in response to a series of kind of cutting edge marketing that the, uh, I think it was the, uh, the British Bible Society had put out a bunch of uh, ads in Vogue, which was all these different models, you know, kind of like looking out a window or, you know, in some pose and then a scripture verse from the gospels. And so he was being interviewed, like, why are they doing this? What, why are these ads showing up in Vogue? And, uh, and N.T. Wright said, it's because we, fashion reminds us that deep down, we know that we are meant for something bigger and better. It's because of our hope in the body, you know? And, and fashion can be used as a source to remind us of our hope in the body um, and our future glory, which is, uh, uh, I mean, when we are glorious, Marinas, like, what will we look like? Because we will have physical bodies that are resurrected and they will look like something. And will they be naked? I mean, that's a legitimate question. Uh, or will they be white robed like we see in the book of Revelation? And those robes are, they're, you know, clearly they're, they're white, which is a color symbolizing um, not only something that's pure, but also it also symbolizes um, like something that is a, a very kind of a higher level, okay, of dress. Ecclesiastes tells us, let your garments always be white. And what it's saying there is don't hold back in celebrating, put on your nice clothes sometimes. So white in the Bible symbolizes nice clothing something nice so these these you know they're not only purified but they're also looking good they are looking good <laughs> these these white robed martyrs um they're wearing something that is nice and jesus of course he also wore a you know a, a garment that was uh without any kind of seams and i think that's really telling as well you know in terms of um he he wasn't just wearing just any old thing he was wearing something special that then relayed his specialness there so yeah those are some thoughts about the hope of the body and about the dark side of fashion but we don't want to just stay there robert so if i could pick up on that i mean you mentioned a little bit about what might be called an eschatology of dress it, it makes me ask a question or poke you to a little bit more to, to answer if you have thoughts on uh, in the eschatology of dress do you conceive of it as 
a process where we're moving from nakedness to being naked again without nakedness. Um, I guess it's just really a question to give us more on whether or not you have a developed eschatology from protology to eschatology from this movement of being naked, uh, where nakedness in my mind is something different than being naked. It's yeah. the introduction of uh, being exposed unto judgment or whatever it might be. Um, so how do you, how do you think about this kind of creation to recreation concept of dress? Corey, I love it. And I love that you, you know, you know, nakedness can have this sense of deprivation, but it can also have the sense of, of um, transparency. And I like that you've drawn that out there with that kind of question, because um, I think there is a transparency. We see light, that, kind of like the white symbolizes the light. And, you know, First John says uh, that we, we can't hide in the darkness. We need to be transparent. We need to, you know, and that's going to be a mark, I think, also in that eschatology is that there will be a transparency. Um, and actually, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, First John tells us. And so when we are transparent, um, then we have this unique way. I mean, you have those conversations where you're just honest with a fellow friend and you're honest and you confess your sins or you're just being really clear and honest about what's going on. And, and then you feel close, right? So I think there is going to be um, something like that. Uh, as far as dress, which is another part of your question, which is, will we be dressed? Like, will we actually be wearing something? What do you think? And that's a fair question. It's um, it's always a little risky to talk about exact deep, you know, the exact specifics of the eschaton of the end times and, and the New Jerusalem. But in my reading of scripture, my theology of clothing from Genesis to Revelation, um, I don't see clothing beginning with the fall. Uh, that's not where I place it. I see it beginning in um, actually before the fall. And, and when I read about Adam and Eve being naked in the garden, the context of that is the gift of the bride. The context, that is the context in which we're informed of the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And the context is, is it's, a, it's a marriage, it's a wedding. It's, it's man and wife coming together um, with God's blessing. That's the context of the nakedness. But note that in that pre-fallen moment, um, there is both a seeing and being seen. And the nakedness itself is very intentional. It's not an accidental nakedness. It's not a, a return to nature, so to speak, that you're naked. It's actually from the very beginning, there is a seeing and being seen and a presentation of the self. In this case, it's of a husband and wife presenting themselves as naked. And so I would argue that you always, are, you always see and are seen. You are always aware of seeing and being seen. This is part of the creation order. And dress is simply the way in which we, because we have agency, uh, then have some kind of say in how we see and are seen. And so um, I could see there being, definitely could see there being dress in the eschaton. Um, and uh, I don't know, maybe I'll go out on a limb here and say, uh, I don't know if I would want to say that it would be fashion, because that's a whole other subject. Um, but I would definitely, I, there's going to be elements of fashion for sure, but I don't know if I want to just baptize fashion, but I would say that there's definitely going to be dress in the eschaton. And, um, because there's going to be the way in which we present ourselves and, as being seen and there's ways in which we are going to be seen. Um, and this, this will be redeemed, which is quite a yeah. concept, what it looked like for clothing to be redeemed. Well, yeah, that, that's really helpful. I've, I've never thought of, um, dress prior to the fall 
in the way you've described. I mean, I guess in some sense, it makes sense of a notion of Adam and Eve as the climax of creation. And in that climax, there's a differentiation from animals, plants, the other aspects of the order of creation. And dress is also perhaps a part of ornamentation um, from God gifting that. I mean, I, th I guess I think of that in a way that, and this is a question uh, really, of, of the angelic hosts um, seem to be at least mentioned as being dressed as well um, at, at times throughout scripture. Um, and, and so I, I wonder if there's a connection there as well with that heavenly sphere and dress as ornamentation or some type of biblical theology potential there. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we believe the body communicates, right? So that's part of our theology. And that's one of the problems with a lot of this idea that, um, you know, that, that uh, there is no, I mean, part of the problem we have these days with a lot of the stuff that's going on with um, identity arguments is that, that Christians by their very nature believe that the body is an identity marker and, and it communicates. And so the point of that is that <clears throat> the way in which we then, we then have to decide how our body is going to communicate. And the way you do that is dress as many ways is the way in which you do that. As you enter into different social settings, you change your dress in order to communicate appropriately within that social setting. And it's only appropriate that in heaven, people are communicating a certain way. And I don't take the presentation of the body as something that is post-lapsum. I take it as before the fall. And, um, and yeah, it also involves ornamentation, but maybe it also, it, it, but it, it's not just ornamentation. It also involves protection. God, God graciously gives, right? These, they have these makeshift clothes that uh, we see emerging after the fall. Where it's kind of like just grab a fig leaf or whatever leaf it is. It doesn't say it's figs, you know. I, I like figs personally, so I don't like figs always get a bad rap in the, in the fall narrative. But uh, you know, he grabs some kind of leaf and makes something up that's very—it's just bad clothing. Like if mm -hmm. if the fall should be kind of associated with anything, it should be bad clothing. <laughs> oh. And then God gives a more sturdy, um, adequate uh, form of clothing for Adam and Eve to go about their task of fulfilling the creation mandate, even outside of um, Eden within a fallen world. And um, yeah. that's profound. I guess some potential uh, reflection on that, a person might come and say, well, um, th there's also a biblical theological development of human anatomy, I think across the Old Testament, where uh, female physiology for example, is made much of in the Song of Songs. Uh, there's even a moment of this sevenfold repetition of the female body that I think manifested as in itself a symbol of the temple of God. Um, and you've got that same idea to me in Genesis 2 with Eve as the climax of creation, almost as the symbol in herself of, of the temple and of the husband as priest guarding that temple, uh, even even built in, in some respects to the physiology. So I guess I'm just saying that to wrestle a little bit with uh, the glory of the body itself as a sign and symbol of the movement of history uh, into some type of eschatological consummation where God's presence fully comes. I think a woman, I think Eve even signifies that in her coming and her creation 
in the liturgical space that is the Garden of Eden. Uh, that doesn't diminish the possibility of dress in my mind before the fall as you're presenting it, but it, it is it does at least maximize a potential theology of the body. Yeah, thank you, Robert. I really also enjoyed that. And I, I've never thought of, of, of uh, dress before the fall either. In my image, it was always nakedness before the fall, and then the, the dress would come later. But I, I, I'll have to go back to the text, of course, to see if I find your exegesis convincing. But it's, it's really, it's at least theologically, I really like it. Because, um, well, like the culture mandate, as, as New Calvinism calls it, is also before the fall. Um, it, it would very much fit with that, that, I mean, I think clothes is maybe one of the first culture-making things we do as humans, and everybody does. I mean, everybody is dressed, indeed, also protection. It, it, it may have simply been cold also at some point, uh, also before the fall. I mean, we just need dress for that. Um, but it's also fascinating to think of how you, the human being is the only animal or the only part of the of the animals that needs dress, that has it. I mean, all the others have a fur or don't need it, um, but, the, but the humans have it. So that that's, says something about that, that culture is kind of part of the fabric of humans, apparently. And that's exactly, I think, what, what, the, what the genus, what, what, what is said in genitive when, when God says to till the earth and, and, and subdue and, and etc. So theologically, I, I, I really, I really appreciate it and like it. And I think it's helpful and also helpful for all the other ways of culture making um, or, or areas or fields that you could go into as a Christian uh, and also start, try to reason from before the fall and not after the fall. It, I think it makes a huge difference in, in, in the way you value and, and also the way you approach it. So thank you for that, Robert. It's helpful. Yeah. Well, it's neo-Calvinism that, that, you know, always asks, you know, what is something by virtue of creation and then how does the fall impact it? Right. And then what does redemption mean for it and what it'll look like in the eschaton. And that's kind of what we just did, isn't it? As good neo-Calvinists. Um, and, and I like your reflections on dress as being profoundly human there's nothing closer to us than dress in terms of artifacts. And we even talk about dress as our second skin, you know? So if you kind of think of yourself, you know, the very, the closest artifacts that we, that we make, that we, that we fashion is indeed our clothing. It's, it's on our bodies. It's so close to us and it's so close to our psyche. It actually enters into the way in which we perform and imagine the world. And it's also, as Corey was, was hinting at there, it's also aesthetic. Right, uh, so dress, it, you know, it, it deals with many different things, but one of the things it deals with is the aesthetics of the body. And, um, you know, and so uh, anytime you're talking about fashion, which is kind of surprises me that we haven't even brought it up yet, but, you know, we're also talking about art, you know, how it works as a form of art and how it is one of the arts these days. If you go into a museum, you'll see fashion is, uh, is there. And uh, yeah, so I find that, um, an equally important thing. And of course, neo-Calvinism also informs those kind of discussions as well. So I have a question um, there when we're talking about the ubiquity of fashion amongst humans. So not all human populations or, or cultures do wear clothes though. So there are some people groups in the world who, who just live naked. Um, theologically, what, like, what do you make of that? Um, is there something like a miss, for example, if humans aren't clothing themselves at all? Oh, James, I appreciate the softball question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, okay, I'll just tell you how I think about it, and, and it's not very developed, but um, I do think that uh, I do think that modesty is a virtue, and that's also always culturally, um, that's always, you know, it's always going to go through different cultural kind of like manifestations, right? So modesty within one culture, and even within a culture. So, you know, if you show up, you know, in your swimsuit to the pool, uh, that's not immodest, but if you wear that swimsuit to a wedding, what are you doing? That's very immodest. Um, so, uh, I think that, um, there's that way of kind of understanding those cultures, um, is that there is a relativity. I've heard that like within some of these naked tribes that you can run around naked, but you know, you know, there's still kind of a logic of modesty, even within those naked tribes, you know? Um, and so I, I don't want to say that there's ever the complete absence of at least the principle of, of kind of modesty, um, uh, because modesty is actually about directing your sexuality in some way, you know, you know, an immodest person is a person that kind of directs their sexuality outward to everybody. You know? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and does the Bible, so the Bible does value modesty because it says this, it says it's, you know, the, that sex is something that is, um, as, as the um, Genesis 2 reference we just had with the gift of the bride, that it's something that is a gift that is to be enjoyed within marriage, within the covenant of marriage. Um, and so, but before I have any kind of like sweeping, you know, colonial judgments on any poor given tribal group, I would want to understand the internal logics of that tribe. Um, and to see if there actually is a logic of modesty that's already operating. Uh, Robert, what about, what are your thoughts on um, liturgical dress and where your theological reflections on dress have led you in terms of what's appropriate, what's best? I think that there's gains and losses. And so, for instance, at our church, we were wondering whether we should um, wear a clerical collar. We're in a 140-year-old uh, independent congregational church, um, and uh in a small town, and a clerical caller can be a calling card um, within our context. Even though we're in greater Los Angeles, there's a sense of space. You guys were already talking about that, but there's a sense of space within um, the small community we're in, even though it's contiguous with greater LA. And so we were talking about that, and we went through the gains and the losses. And some of the gains were that, you know, people would come up and ask for prayer, or they would identify you immediately as being a Christian pastor or, you know, religious leader of some sort. And it might create opportunity, but we also thought about some of the losses um, and um, the way in which we would seem to be kind of outside culture. Or, um, and of course, clerical vestments come from a period in which there was very clear uh, distinctions, almost like a caste uh, in terms of class differences. And it can also communicate that kind of like um, sense of hierarchical uh order and of course hierarchy feels like oppression in late modernity always <laughs> so you know we didn't know what to do with that and, and then of course you know if you go to um uh orange county which is a uh, you know which is south of us here in los angeles men there they all wear the same uniform because it's an affluent kind of like um, upper middle class and so men will always wear uh you know flip-flops and um, usually Hawaiian print uh, shirts and shorts. And that's because they're wearing business suits. And so if you go to like a white, uh, predominantly white, uh, but most Orange County churches, you'll see this kind of outfit. 
And then pastors will wear things like that. They'll wear the, the Hawaiian print and the, and it's their way of saying, I'm with our, you know, I'm one of you. I'm, you know, I believe in the priesthood of believers and my job is just to equip you to do the work of ministry. Right. So there's gains and losses in terms of the use of vestments. And um, I don't think that there's an easy answer or right way. There's just, what are you going to communicate? Um, there's something beautiful and wonderful about um the richness and celebration that can come when there is um, vestments that are used well and appropriately. And uh, I, okay, so let me get really personal here because because I know there's other pastors here on this podcast and I would love to hear what how you guys think about what to wear <laughs> on a Sunday morning as pastors. Marinas and, and, and Corey, and I know James, I know you preach uh, at a church as well. So maybe you guys could tell me how you think through that one. Well, I appreciate what you said because that that's how I've often thought about it. And I was I was uh yeah, but I've I've not thought through the issue all that much as well. Um I think my own personal story is that I, I was preaching for the last four years in a context where if you didn't have a dark suit on, you weren't gonna get into the pulpit. And that was, you know, a basic minimum with a certain color tie and um, but but most of the men, as you were just saying, most of the men dressed like that in the congregation as well. And it was kind of your standard business attire. You know, most of the men that are going to work day in and day out are wearing something like that where I was. And so the expectation uh, was to be um, both professional and one of the tribe and, and dress like that. Now, we, we wore a what, you know, what people call a Genevan robe in the mornings for worship as well. Um, and, um, but, but underneath that, and then in the evenings, it was a suit. Now I'm in a context where, um, there's really a lot more option, I think here. Um, it's a much more informal context. And so again, I think the priesthood of believers concept has always prevailed wherever I've been. And so the dress has been kind of to seek the medium of what the people expect, how they often dress in terms of who's in your congregation. And so I think, I mean, we have free church congregations where I've seen guys um, really preach and lead worship in, in ways that are very, very casual, but that also marks off the nature of their congregation. And there are still some that are wearing suits. Um, I, I don't know about the prevalence of the collar uh, at this point in Scotland. James would have to speak a little more to that than I think I can. Yeah, so the prevalence of the color, it really depends also on which denomination you're in as well. Uh, I think it means something different in the Church of Scotland as opposed to the Free Church of Scotland. Um, in the Free Church of Scotland, it would tend to go along with uh, ministering in like a rural or, special, or especially island congregation and would go along with... Um, you know, quite often with believing in exclusive a cappella samedi and, and it's part of a package of, of different things together and, but it's really uncommon on the mainland in scotland um in terms of how so robert you're asking what i how i think about um clothing and preaching so I, i've done a lot of thinking about this over the years so when i was a seminarian in my first placement in a church for the summer like an internship with a couple of pastors I once preached wearing um, like a suit jacket, um, shirt, tie, but I wore like light colored chinos as trousers. And one of the pastors told me afterwards, you can't do that here. 
And I said, well, why not? And I'd, I'd just been reading Calvin's Institutes on adiaphora and fashion, and that none of these things make, you know, any, like, God, God isn't upset if you wear cream chinos or dark trousers. Um, and you've got the freedom as a Christian to wear either. But uh, so I, I like, preached wearing these cream colored trousers, thinking that that was theologically fine, and that I had Calvin's Institutes to back me up. But the pastor's point was that for some people in the congregation, it would be so aesthetically unusual that it would be a constant distraction from everything you're trying to communicate and how you try to lead worship. And the question you have to ask yourself is, is it worth it that you wear something in particular that, that will make you the focal point? Um, even if theologically you have the freedom to wear this, is it a good use of the freedom? And it was, it was actually quite a formative moment of that, that internship for me. And I think the way that I've tried to um, approach what to wear when preaching or, or leading public worship since then has been to dress in the, the least distracting, most contextual way possible. Um, so, you, you know, I guess something I've learned from you about fashion from, from your book, Robert, is that really understanding fashion is understanding uh, seeing and being seen. And that happens when you're preaching as well. Uh, so you have to be seen to a degree and that people can identify you visually as um, you know, they can locate you culturally and that you're one of them. Again, like the point you're making with the Hawaiian shirts, but you don't want to be seen. Um, you're the ambassador when you preach. You are the messenger and, and not really the message. And you so I, I, I try to dress in ways when I preach that that show that I belong in the context as well, but that um, that aren't distracting enough that people go away thinking, you know, wow, wasn't that a horrendous combination of of like tie to jacket or um, or, you know, wow, wasn't that a like a bold fashion move? I'm not that fashion, not that stylish anyway. So <laughs> there's no chance of that happening. But um, I, I, I just want to be recognized as fitting into the context. But at the same time, the point of people coming isn't to uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's an aisle and not a runway, right? Or a catwalk <laughs> as you get to the pulpit. I'm trying to remind myself that every time I go to preach. Um, but you know, where where it, it, that does become difficult to my experience as a preacher has been like, preaching in in a rural northern Malawi. Um, I don't know how to dress in a, in a kind of context. That made me realize I don't have paradigms to think through what to wear while preaching here. Uh, whereas preaching in my congregation in Edinburgh, I know exactly uh, what to wear in order to be contextually appropriate and minimally distracting. Um, so there's just a lot of wisdom, I guess, with knowing how you will see and, and how you will be seen in, in particular contexts. Yeah, thank Thanks. you. It's all very helpful. I've, 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 had, I've also given it a lot of thought because it's, it's something, especially when I became a pastor, it's something you have to think about every, every Sunday. I mean, what, what am I going to wear? Um, and it used to be suits in my tradition in like darker colors. Um, but then that was also the dress of the people at church. It used to be, but it isn't anymore now. Uh, people now tend to dress very informally in church. When it's summer, they even will come in shorts. Um, so, um, and for them, that expresses they feel at home because suit means work and they don't want to be, have the feeling they, they, they want to feel at home in the church. So it also shows how fashion or your clothes communicate something to yourself also, but also to the people around you. 
So that, that plays very well into things you said earlier. Um, so first I just preached in the suit, but then I realized that my suit was different from what the people in the church were, were dressed up like. I was much more formal. Um, so now I, I usually do like a combination. So I have, um, well, it's not like a suit in one color, one style, but just different. So a little bit more casual. Um, but, uh, and then the other thing is the color. So you, you, you guys know I've, I've, I've been, I, I, I do wear the color. I've, I've been doing that for, for two and a half years, but that where that started is not on the pulpit, but it started um, on the open. So we, we opened the doors of the church like two days a week. And then I'm present there as a pastor. And that's where I started wearing the color. Just uh, Robert mentioned it as well for, for the sake of visibility and clarity. And that's, it's very helpful for that. Um, and also sometimes now I do it when I'm on the train, when I, when I get my lunch or my coffee, when I went from, and the, I mean, that just, you see people watching, it's just a, a way of being visible because I live in a city where there's almost nobody Christian. So my appearance alone, like a guy in his thirties, um, uh, sporting the collar is, is just something that is kind of unsettling for people. They're like, Oh, okay. This, well, uh, this is weird. Is he, is he, is this an actor? No, he doesn't look like an actor. This is a real person who is 35 and is putting a collar. He must be a priest. Um, so, and, and it leads to conversations as well. Um, so that's, that's the first reason. And, um, and what I do now is also wear it when I preach. And I really like that too. And I, I've also been, I've been, been thinking about it from the beginning. I wanted, I, I felt like I kind of needed something in my, my, my dress that reminded me and other people that I have an office, that I am, that I'm not just Marinus saying something, but that that I'm saying something, I'm preaching and I'm I'm doing this work because the congregation, in that's at least in, in the reform way I'm saying it, um, called or asked me to do it. And through the congregation, God asked me to do this. Um so I I I did ask what well, what I start is by wearing a cross. So when I when I'm in the pulpit, I also wear a cross. Um, and that that for me is more than the color and also for other people to sign okay i'm not just me saying something but i have an office um, and i have a role here and i'm speaking on behalf of god here um not not like to as, as, a, as a means of power of course because it, it can be understood in very wrong ways but as a way of understanding what's going on and, a, and a, like a visible reminder of it and the color does that too it also shows okay this guy and and I, I completely see also all the problems it entails. It it made it, it may look like you're a clergy or you're different. It may downplay the office of the believers and it may create distance to people. And th there's all kinds of downsides to it. Um, and I I see them too, and I feel them sometimes. And it's a continuing reflection on it. But this far, this is what I've chosen, and I, yeah, um, I like it. I I I, I like the benefits it gives me. Marinus, how common is a collar and a cross in the Reformed Church in the Netherlands? Is it are you uh, more unusual, or is that more common? Or I'm weird. So in Amsterdam context, it's not very unusual. There's more colleagues who do it in Protestant church, and I think in my denomination, there's probably one or two who do it as well. So I, I sometimes choose not to wear it when I go to another congregation because it may do exactly what James's people will just be talking about the color after the sermon and not about what I said. Then it distracts. So sometimes I choose not to do it. Um, on the other hand, I also want to encourage people to do it because it has benefits. So there will be a reason to, 
to do wear it when I'm somewhere else. So that's always there's always a kind of the that's always the, the the consideration you have to make. But it's um yeah it, it it is a little uncommon and that that also makes that you have to be careful not to not to distract people. Well, I think this conversation really shows that there is no kind of a cultural way of being. <laughs> Even pastors have to wrestle with what they're going to wear because they know that inevitably once you step into, um, uh, you know, when we are always in a culture and we are always communicating and, um, and even the way in which Marinas, you talked about shifting different social settings then causes you to question the use of the collar. I mean, it's what we're all doing. Um, and, and I think it's just one of the kind of complexities of modernity as we have, you know, this mixing and matching of cultures all the time in our, in our current global situation. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, if I may, I'll just say, you know, um, one of the things that, that this, this subject of fashion theology has brought up is it, it's brought up a lot of conversations in new ways. And so, uh, and I think this, this whole conversation itself has been an example of that, that, um, it, it's brought up, you know, you can talk about, uh, you can enter into discussions like identity or art or public space space or you know the public sphere or any number of of questions but when you bring it in from the angle of of fashion it it kind of opens it up in a new way and um and i i'm just deeply grateful for this podcast i've been enjoying you guys uh, listening to you now and enjoying this podcast and so it's an honor to be on it uh and particularly because i'm also a neo-calvinist and I see the value and power of this tradition and I've enjoyed entering into the world of fashion, but I wanna just challenge whatever neo-Calvinists are out there that are listening, think about whatever spheres of culture that they also have some insights on and to continue the conversation because that's one of the great joys of this tradition is that there's this desire to hold on to the great um, uh, gifts of those who've gone before us and yet to do that as those living in the modern period addressing these really very real cultural issues such as as fashion. So anyway, I just want to thank you all for um, for the privilege of being on here today and for the rich conversation. Uh, I've been on a lot of podcasts, I will say, since the book came out. And uh, this, this this has been an absolutely unique podcast and I didn't expect anything else because uh, because I know I know you guys and I also know the tradition that we uh, joyfully are part of and I expected uh, uh, expected such. So thank you so much. Thank you very much also, Robert, for being with us. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. It, it gave me many new insights. It was also uh, just great to, to, to see you again, to talk to you again, uh, hear what you do. And I think just a, a wonderful example of, um, a wonderfully concrete example of how new, new Calvinism can help to like graciously dive into this, this, this cultural field and, and try to understand it better, to listen, but then also be able to address it without, in, in a, in, in, in a new fashion. So thank you very much, Robert, and also for the kind words uh, about our podcast. It was really great to have you. Um, thank you. And also thank you, um, our listeners, for being with us this episode. Um, please leave a review in your podcast app that helps other listeners to more easily find our podcast. Tell your friends about it. And we'd also love to hear back from you. So any feedback, questions, or episode topics are more than welcome. Uh, you can find us on social media or send an email to graceincommonpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This is Grace in Common.